Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and play styles of all of the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't work, what led to better games, as well as what, well, what didn't. And we talk about it all. And in this episode, we are going to discuss economies in your D&D RPG game. I'm Sam Dillon, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Brenda Stoddard. And I believe Sam is going to start start us off with a uh, basic form of the economy of original D&D in its many editions that are still original editions. Sure. We count like programmers. Um, <laughs> first edition doesn't happen until right. uh, 77, sort of. Yeah, yeah. So in Zeroth edition, which is uh, the, uh, the wood grain box with the three little brown books... Uh, in that edition, the way that you get treasure is you loot it from the bodies of your defeated monsters, or uh, better yet, and less likely to kill you, you sneak around and steal it from them while they aren't looking because you have distracted them with some fantastical plan. And the way that the dungeon master in those games, which was actually called the referee back then, the way that the referee would determine how much treasure you found or what was in that chest or whatever it was, uh, there's two things that we, actually three things we need to talk about. The first thing is that the treasure tables in the Monsters and Treasure book tell you, uh, it has a letter, a treasure type letter for each type of treasure. Each treasure type letter has a possibility of having some amount of certain types of treasure in it. And each creature that you might meet has a particular letter designation. So, uh, for example, let me just randomly go uh, choose one. If I go back up here to the table at the beginning of the book, there is a table that tells you, for example, that um, gorgons are, uh, they usually come in a number appearing groups of one to four. They have an armor class, a certain movement rate, a certain hit die, and they have a 50% chance of being in a lair. So, if you find a gorgon lair, there's a 50% chance that there will actually be one to four Gorgons in there. And if you defeat them or heist their treasure out from under them without having to kill them and, and fight with them, uh, they have treasure type E. That is the capital letter E. And if you then go down to the treasure table, which I have to go back to real quick, treasure type E says this. It says there is a 5% chance that there will be between 1,000 and 10,000 copper pieces. There is a 30% chance that there will be between 1,000 and 12,000 silver pieces. There is a 25% chance that there will be between 1,000 and 8,000 gold pieces. There is a 10% chance there will be 1 to 10 gems, a 10% chance there will be 1 to 10 pieces of jewelry, and a 30% chance that there will be a mix and match of any three types of uh, maps or uh, scrolls. Okay. Now, here's what that means. For example, if there's a 5% chance that there will be some copper there, the referee rolls percentage dice. And if they roll 5 or below, that means there is indeed copper in that layer. And then they roll a D10. And whatever that D10 is, they multiply it by 1,000. And that tells the DM or the referee how many copper pieces are in that layer. And then you do the same thing for the silver, except it's 30% chance. And then you roll the D12. And then that's how much silver. So that's that's how it works. Um, so that's the first thing, is that you have this treasure table. Each creature has a treasure type. 
The second thing was something I actually already said, and that is that in this particular version of the game, there weren't very many types of creatures that had individual treasure on them. Most creatures in the game, you had to find them in their lair or you had to find their lair to steal their treasure. The only types of creatures that had individual treasure on them, for example, are uh, bandits, which might have 2 to 20 silver pieces each. So that's the second thing. So the first thing is there's this big table. Each creature type gets a treasure type designation. The second thing is that they you probably have to find them in their lair, which means, you know, that's dangerous. The third thing that I wanted to bring up was the fact that the um the the gold and um how do I say this? The conversion from gold piece to silver piece to copper piece to electrum to platinum is slightly different in this edition. This is something that I don't think I knew. Yeah, so um, in this particular, in Zeroith edition, okay, one gold piece is 10 silver pieces. Okay, fine. And one silver piece is five copper pieces. (laughs) And electrum is half a gold and platinum is five times. So Wait, okay. Platinum is five times? Right. Platinum is five. Platinum's like a, a $5 bill. If gold is a $1 oh. bill, platinum's a $5 bill. So. Okay. So, so platinum platinum is usually a 10. So that is different. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm used to Electrum being the weird mid step between gold and silver because it's right. literally a mix mm-hmm. of gold and silver. Right. Exactly. So, but so that's, that's something I hadn't, I, I'm sure I knew at some point, but I had not remembered okay so let's so let's talk about that one again so it's uh, a copper five copper is one silver 10 silver is one gold one electrum is half a gold so two electrum is one gold and platinum is five gold that's okay that's sort of an interesting a little bit a little bit harder and more mind-bending way to do it but it's not a, as quick a, a calculation in my brain, right? So that was 1974, 75, 76, right? Yep. That's that's your zero. Then you get to the Holmes basic rules. Well, quick question about that. Yes. Uh, about original. Uh-huh. In that edition, is all encumbrance rated in number of coins? Yeah, it's it's coin weight. They give you a, a weight equivalent table. So one coin is worth one weight. And a small sack holds 50, a large sack holds 300, a scroll is 20, a potion is 30. Okay, so the character, it's interesting. It gives an example. It says, let's say a character equips himself with the following items. Plate armor, a helmet, a shield, a flail, a bow, a quiver and 20 arrows, a dagger, and some miscellaneous equipment. It has a number for each of these items that is the weight of the item, but that's not necessarily related to the cost. For example, plate mail costs 50 yeah. gold, but then the number that they have for plate armor is 750. They have these values for these helmets, 50, a shield's 150, and they add all those things up, all the equipment the character's carrying, and it adds up to 1,200. The character would move at the speed of an armored footman, could pick up an additional 300 gold pieces weight of treasure and incur no movement penalty. Weight over 1,500 would incur the penalty of half speed noted above. It only gives very few items of weight. It basically says... Uh, the weight of a man is seventeen hundred and fifty. The load in gold pieces equal to a light footman. A light foot movement is seven fifty. Heavy foot movement is one thousand. Armed foot movement is fifteen hundred. Leather armor or a saddle is two hundred and fifty. 
chainmail armors 500, plate armor 750. And then miscellaneous equipment just gets all lumped together as counting for 80. And so it gives you these weights, and but they're all related to coin weight. And the reason they do that, though, is so that you can then, uh, quote, easily figure out how much gold, how much more gold, how much more treasure uh, these people can pick up, right? Yeah, I think it I think it sort of centers the attention on gameplay expectations, right? Very clearly, yeah. Like, yeah, your job is to extract value from this dungeon, right? And one of the most common forms is a coin, right? Now, if you have the option of you know transporting gems instead, do that, mm-hmm. right? Because they're going to be worth more, you know, for the weight per unit weight. But that's fine for sure. Yeah. So then we move to um, we move to the uh, the Holmes Basic rules, which came out in 1977. And so I'll remind our audience that Holmes Basic was really just the sort of step in between the three little brown books to let you play three levels of advanced D and D, and then literally at the end of the book, at the end of the rulebook, it points you to advanced dungeons. It says basically, okay. Now you've you've hit third level. You can you know you can move to the advanced version of the game, and so really uh, the Holmes Basic is a stepping stone between the three little books and first edition AD and D. And so basically everything in this Holmes Basic rulebook matches basically what I just said. It's either it either matches the three brown books or it matches first edition. And so when you look at the uh, the, the treasure types, it's the same treasure types. There aren't any individual treasure types. It's just hordes or layer treasure types, uh, the base value is uh, five uh, gold is a platinum, two electrum is a gold, ten silver is a gold, five copper is a silver, same as what I just told you about the little brown books. Um, And basically the table is almost exactly the same. Uh, In fact, if we look back at uh, row E, which is what I looked at uh, for the for the Gorgon, it's almost exactly the same. The percentages are slightly lower, but um, otherwise it's basically the same. I mean, the, the thing about those treasure tables is that um, so, some numbers have been moved around over time, and mm-hmm. sort of expected value per letter has shifted around, but right. the, sure. the fundamental format has only been different for one edition. Right. That, that being fourth. Right. Uh, like otherwise, that's not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, the the numbers have changed on the table, and the conversion of coinage has changed, and the way that we, the way that uh, encumbrance is presented changed eventually. But ultimately, uh, this type of you know basic layer gold value you know treasure value per creature has stayed basically the same so so let's let's move quickly through the other basics so then there's um there's bx uh basic and bx basic has uh, the same kind of idea it has all these treasure types but what it does is for the first time it introduces an individual treasure type Mm -hmm. so now instead of just being letters a through i or a through o uh, that are meant to re- represent what you might find in the lair of a creature. The, the game recognizes, oh, well, some individual creatures or creature types might have gold on themselves without having a giant, have to having a giant lair, right? Yeah. Uh, so you get now treasure types P, Q, R, S, T, U, and V. So previously, the table didn't go through that many number or letters. It only had letters, you know, either A through I or A through O. And so 
so that's a that's a change. But basically, <laughs> basically, it's the same. Uh, the gold conversion is the same, except now one silver equals ten copper. In the last two, we had a silver, I believe, equaling uh, five copper. And so now finally they have bumped that up, so it's a little easier. So right. ten copper is a silver, ten silver is a gold. So that's those are going to be the most three most often used, at least at the lower levels, right? And then two electrum is a gold, five gold is a platinum. So they popped that up. The same basic idea stands. The same basic thing that you do, the same coin weight issues, the same, you know, everything is basically the same. All they did was adjust the tables to provide an individual listing of treasures that you might find on a single creature or a single troop of creatures rather than in their lair, and they adjusted the coin value. And it's sort of funny to me how accustomed I as a gamer have gotten really very early in my gaming career to Mm -hmm. uh, easily sort of base 10 currency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Electrum isn't a problem. I don't have have any trouble calculating Electrum. But uh, at one point I went to a LARP where the money was base (laughs) 5 and my head melted. (laughs) I just couldn't deal with that shift without right. like an enormous amount of thought it was completely unreasonable how much uh, how much difficulty it gave me yeah i will note also that the 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 encumbrance changed a little bit because the encumbrance now actually is listed as coin weight so rather than having a you know in in the zeroth edition it's just sort of this random number that is thrown at you and they, and there there is a correlation there and uh, but here there's actually there's a table that specifically gives you the direct correlation to your encumbrance the coin weight um, and treasure you're carrying yeah uh, and this was 1980 so you know zeroth edition is 1974 Holmes basic is 1977. 1980 is BX, okay? And then in um, in 1982 or 1983, let me check, uh, you get Red Red Box, Frank Mincer, the you know most popular basic edition box um, that everyone uh, often cites. Yeah, so 81, 83. So <laughs> so now you're uh, now you're at the point where you have a still a very similar thing. There are group treasure types A through O. There are individual uh, treasure types um, P through V. You have uh, gem values. You have coins. Uh, now it's um, uh, still uh, one platinum is five gold. Ten electrum is five gold. Fifty. So, so the 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 ten silver is one gold. Two electrums, one gold. Five gold is one platinum, and one gold is a hundred copper, which means one go, uh, one silver is ten copper. So that's the same as uh, as BX, not Holmes Basic. Um, all these all these basic editions start running together in my head, um, but you get the idea. Basically, there's not a lot of change there. There's yep. not a lot of change. Now the changes came subtly through different creatures. Okay. Okay. Um, but but ultimately, uh, from you know. From the beginning to where we are now, you know, if I, if I look in the rules cyclopedia, it has sort of a more concise page where it shows you the tables. Um, and once again, the the percentages might have shifted, or the type of layer or the the treasure type that you provide for a creature might be slightly different. But the idea is exactly the same. Okay, so so the next major topic I want to cover across uh, 
original D&D, because mm-hmm. I think it's going to matter so much as we go forward, is once you have the money, what do you do with it? Right. And I think I know the answer. So I'm going to I'm going to toss out an answer, and you'll tell me how far off base I am. Okay, let's hear it. I think that until you get to Beck Me, you do two core things with it, and then Beck Me is here to give you a third major thing. Uh, I think the first thing you do with your money, it really as early as possible, starting cash if, if you can manage it, is you uh, hire people to take hits for you. you you're hiring hirelings and henchmen and so on to do things you can't do and mm-hmm. to uh, die in your place as much as possible. <laughs> right, yes. Uh, the dead cost nothing, to, to quote you know Patrick McGowan. <laughs> and uh, I think that that's a huge part of the expectation of where your money is going to go. So the funny thing is that that probably diminishes as you have more money because you're going up in level and you can take more of the damage. You can do more of the actual work yourself. The other main thing I assume you do with it is to pay for training. Mm-hmm. Having accrued the money, you don't have to keep it just to keep your XP, but I assume you do have to spend a lot of money for training. Is that a significant part of outlay in early editions? I don't remember if there was training cost in the three little brown books. I can't honestly remember. There's the, So re- also remember, though, that... Um, Remember the other thing that's happening with the economy here in these older editions is gold equals XP. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you absolutely need the money to gain the XP. You need the money. But right. once you've captured the money, mm-hmm. you don't right. lose the XP when you spend it. Right, that's correct. But also remember that you're... I sort of assume the game expects your your wealth to kind of be a score that mostly goes up, but also right. that you do spend money for some things. Right, and that, and remember though that uh, in the and for example in zeroth edition you you couldn't gain more than one level right yeah at a time so yeah. you couldn't like find a treasure hoard that had a bazillion gold pieces worth of treasure in it and suddenly become twentieth level like that didn't happen right and so right so you would accrue all this gold and only a small portion of it would have actually been needed to level up and now you've got all this gold left over right and and what's uh, interesting about that is that it pushes a lot of game balance and game design onto the treasure tables. Mm-hmm. Those need to actually be tuned in some way to match up with like creature power. Right. That's, some, that's another thing that's going to fluctuate edition over edition in how important it is and why it's important. Yeah, there's all, so the one thing that you could spend money on is magical research. Right, okay. Right. So even even way back in 0th edition, you could do magical research. Nice. So uh, you have to invest time. And so uh, both magic users and clerics may attempt to expand on the spells listed as applicable by class. This is a matter of time and investment. The level of magic required to operate the spell, determined by the referee, dictates the initial investment. An investment for first level is 2,000 gold pieces. Second level is 4,000, third level is 8,000, fourth is 16, fifth is 32, sixth is 64. Time required is a week per spell level. For every amount equal to the basic investment spent, there's a 20% chance of success cumulative. An investment of 10,000 gold pieces in order to develop a new first level spell, for example, has a 100% chance of success after one week. So, yeah. Right, okay. Uh, We definitely see spell research as 
part of play uh, going forward. Oh, yes. Though how it factors into play and what you have to do to achieve it um, really is all over the map. Right. (laughs) And we covered that pretty heavily in um, uh, the 12 Days of Christmas uh, when we looked at high-level campaigns and spells and magic. Um, There is an investments section in Book 3, Underworld and Wilderness. Oh, look at that. Construction of castles and strongholds. Um, So... Wow, I forgot these rules were in here. Oh no, I, you know what? I no, I didn't. But I just wasn't relating it to this book at the moment. <laughs> there is this wonderful picture in page on page twenty one of you know, hearing being a great podcaster again talking about a picture. It shows you. It has all the pieces of a castle drawn, and it shows you the name of them, how big they are, what they look like. Like for example, it shows you what a barbican looks like. It shows you round and square towers, curtain walls, uh, small towers, gatehouses, uh, and it and it has these prices and whatnot uh, attached to them, and and it shows you like size, right, which is fascinating. And then it talks about uh, hiring specialists to help run everything in your castle or stronghold. Yeah, so uh, there is something to spend your money on. I am delighted by the explanation of you know each section of a castle. Right. Yeah. Because let me tell you, growing up, I had so many books yeah. that explained each portion of a castle, right. and I loved every one of them. Yeah. They just never included prices in gold coins, which is weird. <laughs> you think? Like, right. come on. Yeah. No. This kidding, is practical right? stuff that I needed yeah. to know, guys. <laughs> yeah. So there's a big section on player character support and upkeep. Player characters must pay gold pieces equal to one percent of their experience points for support and upkeep until such time as they build a stronghold. There it is. If the stronghold is in a wilderness area, all support and upkeep costs then cease. If it's in a village or town not controlled by the player character, then the support and upkeep payments must continue. It talks about baronies, what happens if you have angry villagers, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I love. Yep. And and that's going to show up in the First Ed DMG for sure. Yeah. Yes. I I know I recognize that text from First Ed. Yeah. So so it did provide – it did provide – uh, ways to suck the money away from the players, um, and I don't mean that in a bad way. You know, like I, I, there, there's there's some balancing here that you have to do. You know, in the name of fun, right? You don't want to give the give the PCs um, a bucket of really awesome items just to take them away for no reason. Um, but the game itself is structured to make it so that there is something t- to make the the PCs have to spend money on if they want to progress any further in the world and in the game. Um, and those things continue. And and you mentioned uh, Beckme and uh, the world, the rule cyclopedia, because that also has, you know, the companion set. So it went basic expert companion, right? The companion set, which is the teal colored box has the, you know, the, the great uh, siege warfare rules and and the building your stronghold rules for that particular edition. And exactly. it's extensively, extensively detailed about how much money everything costs. It really is. Uh, so Companion is actually the one part of uh, Beckme that I own and have read in detail back when I was doing my um, history of domain management rules mm-hmm. for tribality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I picked up a copy of that. Well, my wife got me a copy of that, I should say. And uh, I poured through it, and uh, I I was impressed to discover, I would say, 
that it actually holds up really well. Uh, you could adapt the the structure and concepts of companion forward to second or third or fifth and probably even fourth mm-hmm. um, and expect that to pretty much go fine. The, the fundamental concepts that are going to be at play with any domain management system are so different a rules module to the rest of whatever's going on in addition mm-hmm. that um, I'm not going to say it's no adaptation required. That's, that's going a little far, right. but a lot of different things have been tried and a lot of them don't work. So companion it does have a clarity of vision that I, I can respect. And I think that does have something to do with the, fact that the rule cyclopedia was worth you know printing and binding and r- remained a you know, popular volume for many many years thereafter yeah yeah i mean i, I i'm looking at the um the companion book right now and the other thing that it does is it it also provides for explaining how the the dominion that you have whatever domain that you're creating can have income Right. Yeah. Um, and so yep. it, it it definitely becomes something where it is a campaign management thing. It's a kingdom management problem, or uh, maybe yep. problem's the wrong word. It's a kingdom management issue. Um, also, what what Beckme does in the companion rule set is it also accounts for the fact of if you're building this this big stronghold, you might piss off nearby nobles. And so there's a chance of, of these other people reacting to the fact that you are gaining followers and having – so it, be, it becomes a very different game. And that's something that is not a problem for me that I find extremely fascinating. I won't go so far as to say I have ever done it very well in a game, though, um, because it's, a, it's an extreme shift from the typical sort of lower-level fighting in dungeons, fighting in the forest kind of game. Yeah, for sure. And so it ha- takes a sort of special kind of preparation to make that make sense to the way that the players are, you know. Yeah. So I'm a, a long-time fan of the Birthright setting. I, I don't know how much I've talked about it on this show, probably a lot, because, yeah. Um, and the whole conceit of Birthright is, you know, why wait till ninth level to start your domain management? First level, right. let's do this. Right, because um, you're all you're all basically nobles, right, or or the vassals of nobles. Right, you're all regents or uh, advisors to regents, and uh, so you have a a, a domain uh, right at the gate, and that's a really interesting uh, approach to things. It really really changes the style of play. That's the only game where I have you know, had domain management be a big part of the game. In my fifth edition game, I think that's a very reasonable possibility for mm-hmm. a direction that the campaign might go right now. Um, the highest level PCs are ninth level, and uh, they have control of a city. They aren't currently just pocketing the tax revenue of that city because they have, I don't know, ethics or whatever. That's weird. <laughs> Those nasty, dirty ethics. <laughs> but, um, like, uh, the whole campaign has been set up for the possibility of the, the characters like, deciding they want to uh, take over the rest of the province and then expand from there. And mm-hmm. 
I think they know it's a possibility. Certainly the ones who listen to this show are about to find out. Um, <laughs> and so I'm going to be curious to see what happens. So, so Brandis, sir. Oh. So I, I think we've covered Zeroith through all of the basics yep. pretty well. And and on purpose, just for those listening, on purpose, we've kind of skimmed, right? I mean, I I purposefully didn't go into detail for a lot of the things here because we're really going to go into detail in first edition. And it's so similar to the previous basics and, and zeroth edition that I feel like it's fair to sort of cut those a little bit short and to spend a lot of time in first edition. All right, so I'll let you start first edition. All right, so first edition is still certainly building on the bones that we saw in in original. But um, I think that to a much greater degree in in first edition, uh, Gary is trying to like set out ways that you do spend money and is like tabulating costs for all these things. And I have a lot of specifics to, to go through here. So, so, uh, spending money to make money is the next big way that the the game wants you to, to to invest that cash that you got from the thing before this. And like I said, uh, you know, picking up some hirelings in the starting town who will take hits for you and help you survive first level is as old as the game, uh, mm-hmm. and it isn't going anywhere here. It's still still very, very much part of the expectation, um, mm-hmm. such that on page 28, you have a table of standard hirelings with their daily and monthly wages, right? 28 of the DMG. Of the DMG, yes, of the, of the first DMG. And you have a, a number of different standard professions. Um, and then on the facing page, you have expert hirelings and their monthly rates and those uh, those start to veer a little high, but I think that um, if I can extrapolate from Gygax's stories that were printed in Dragon Magazine and things like that, there's a real conceit that uh, you're paying money to to extract money because there's a real risk that you won't make it back that right. like you're you're not going to make back the money that you spend so it, it's a it's a whole risk reward thing and i think there's a real possibility of you have you know one bad mission and you're wiped out uh, of mm-hmm. uh, disposable funds for a while and you've got to go get your hands dirty to make back enough to like essentially be a business owner again. Um, I've talked before about how there's this uh, Wild West sentiment um, running through Gygax's idea of what D&D is, and I'm really not the first person to see that. But um, I think that there is a a sense of shifting from um, being sort of – the the cowpoke or the settler or the lawman into being the business owner who is running mm-hmm. the mine, right? And running a mine is something we're going to get a whole rules module for over in um, 
Dungeoneer's Survival Guide, and I think there's something about it in the DMG, but we're going to have to get to that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, like I said, some of these professions run pretty expensive, um, and some of them uh, don't even get listed in the table because the whole way to price them is is more involved. But um, when you get to expert hirelings, uh, I think the, the sense is sort of either they're specifically extracting money for you by running a mine, or they are clearing away hurdles that the GM has introduced in the story by answering questions in the case of the sage or the spy or mm-hmm. um, retiring the opposition in the case of the assassin. Uh, the assassin doesn't make it into this table, but um, I, if I recall correctly, we're going to get to a whole section on uh, hiring assassins. I think so. It gets its own several pages. Yeah, It's amazing how much there is on just hiring a sage. Yeah, so, so here you go. The assassin spying table is is a thing. All of this is about the economy and what PCs are going to do to spend their money. Gygax's main idea is that they're going to spend their money to make more money because that's the XP loop. And, you know, that's, that's sensible uh, and certainly fits the, you know, uh, frontier concept that I think Gygax sees in you know the, the Greyhawk Wilderness. I would agree with that statement, and I and I think that he he himself had a sort of um, verisimilitude drive, if that makes sense. You know, he uh, definitely he really he his his idea was basically like uh, I think at least initially, why in the heck would a group of adventurers keep going out and and risking their lives in this extreme manner, like super extreme manner. And, you know, because it was so easy to die. Like, why would you do that if you could do it just a couple of times, get a little bit of seed money, and that's kind of like your venture capital, right? <laughs> and now you're going to put that money to work for you rather than going out and risk getting your arm chopped off. Right. I think that, you know, very specifically, he had players that came to that realization and um, kind of wanted to create a proto acquisitions incorporated. Like, yeah, I think that was kind yeah. of where a lot of his players' imaginations went because, like, each adventure did have such a high risk of uh, instant death. Right. Right, because save or die is a real big part of the game mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in in Gary's conception, and so risk mitigation in this case is making somebody else do it. Right. Um, yeah, because you know this this whole um, this hireling section, uh, you know, with the sages and whatnot, is followed by the henchman section, where you know it talks about. The initial payment. It talks about what equipment uh, that you are expected to provide for them, or expect them to provide themselves, and what jobs they will do for you, and what their loyalty is. You know, how likely are they to go uh, accidentally trigger that trap and fail their save or die chance? You know, um, and that is that is uh, that's that's also a reaction to, I'm sure, the players who said, "Well, we still do want to go out and adventure because that stuff's fun." Even though it's dangerous, 
So, sure. you know, there's sort of two, two bookends here on either side of the, of the PCs saying, okay, well, we have these tendencies and we have to deal with them in two slightly different ways. They both uh, sort of attach to or have strings into the economy of how the game is running. Yep. Um, and I also want to point out that one big section of expert hirelings is mercenaries. Hiring an army is definitely on the table. Yep. Yep. Uh, I think that for these hirelings, it's much less his idea that you would you know, have that army pre- precede you into the dungeon, even though he would totally have hirelings do that, mm-hmm. and more his idea that you're going to shift into you know, warfare and domain management. Right, yes. You're definitely uh, going to use that army to maintain your stronghold, right? Yeah. Which is why that thing I mentioned about the companion set where they listed, you know, here are the other possible rulers in the region and how are they going to react to the fact that you're building a stronghold and therefore raising an army. So that same thing was going on here. God, this is such a great section of the book. <laughs> I love I love <laughs> this. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, for, for NPCs to interact with and ways to, to sketch out um, – the expected action of play, like what you do with all this stuff, mm-hmm. it it really it really does do that. Now it's uh, sort of mind-bogglingly detailed mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, right? But um, you can you work your way through it and get there for sure. Um, it, it's interesting that um, sages uh, says as with any hireling of importance. Um, for sages, you need to determine abilities, alignment, and even special skills. They have to be built as full player characters. They can't just be, you know, generic NPCs that you don't know every detail about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the 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 deal with sages ultimately is that, you know, you need to solve a mystery to get to the next hit of treasure. Well, if you can't solve it on your own, you can pay someone to do that for you. Uh, and so that's how I would frame the importance of sages here. Um, but the uh, the costs of sages are absolutely through the roof. Right. Uh, the long-term employment of a sage, the, <laughs> yeah. su- the support and salary per month is 200 to 1,200 gold. The research grants per month is 200 to 1,200 gold. And the initial material expenditure is 20,000 gold. Minimum. Yeah, buddy. But remember, though, remember, by the time these characters are in a position to be actually hiring these sages or trying to plan to hire one, they've got quite a bit of gold. Yeah, for sure. Because they're they're getting up there in levels, and they had to have a gold piece for every single experience point that they earned. Uh, and then you have further costs in the information discovery time and cost table. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. In in their mind, because what happens is when you have this sage, you uh, you roll on the tables to determine how many minor fields of studies that they know about and how many major fields of study. And then uh, if you want them to find out information about a particular topic, it matters whether it's outside of their fields of expertise or whether it's in their minor field or major field. And those things have concomitant increases in what it costs. 
<laughs> to, to learn that info. Yep. Ah, uh, I mean, crazy. Well, and I mean, this all kind of is, is intersecting together. Um, because there are time costs for a lot of this too, mm-hmm. and uh, I think Gygax is deeply, deeply interested in uh, the cost of time, both as you're paying your personal upkeep uh, as time passes, mm-hmm. and also um, your character's aging. Right. I think he's interested in that. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get to the famous quote on that in just a minute. <laughs> but um, yeah, we get through henchmen. Uh, there's a lot of different things about henchmen going on here, both cost to recruit, different different ways of, of recruiting. Like, do you, do you put out an ad? Do you uh, put out a, an ad that can talk? Or do you right. hire an agency to find mm-hmm. you somebody? Right. Like that's that that's an extraordinary level of um, detail to even discuss this thing. Mm-hmm. Right. I yeah. Can, I'm just I'm just blown away that there's a table for that. It's it, this is a, a a thing that I haven't seen any other edition drill down into. It's a lot. Well, and also, you know, there's all sorts of modifiers and whatnot based on, you know, how many, how many faithful henchmen uh, or hirelings have been with you and, and perished. Yeah. Right. And and word gets around, you know. Um, oh yeah, the the loyalty modifiers are insane. Yeah. There's so much. Yeah. And and I mean, you know, so here's the thing, you know, I mean, we, we can say a lot of things about Gary Gygax, but one of the things that I think not very many people would argue with or, or take exception to is he made a living world for his players. And the consequences of doing things were often cruel, um, but damn, that world was alive. Yep. And this is this is the result of that, or the, the the part of the reason why that world is so alive. Or this is the set of tools he was trying to give us to help us also make our worlds be alive. Um, and not all of it successful. Yeah. So, um, if you dug into some of those percentage modifiers, mm-hmm. I think you'd learn a lot about what Gygax thought about the world. Mm-hmm. And how people behaved. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of, I think, um, accurate or inaccurate, a, a lot of attempt at behavioral psych getting coded into this table. <laughs> like it, <laughs> yeah. it's sort of amazing yeah. that that's a thing, but here we are. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. Um, so that brings us to uh, the the time section, and I, I there's no way I was going to get past this without reading the all cap sentence. You cannot have a meaningful campaign if strict time records are not kept. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't even disagree. I just I just object to the passive voice. Yeah. But that's my issue. Um but but ultimately um like I was saying the whole idea is that uh, time is eventually going to push you into needing more money. Uh, mm-hmm. Because you are paying this upkeep, assuming you haven't shifted into domain play, 
and he's he's interested in you know how time matters and how the world changes after day one of the campaign. Mm-hmm. You know, when the players do something, when does the world change? Well, that should be as realistic within the the, the unrealism of D anD D as can be attained. Right. And something that that my campaign makes me really appreciate here is the section on um, some penalty must accrue to the non-active, but on the other hand, the overactive cannot be given the world on a silver platter. So what he's talking about is how uh, he was running the campaign. He had a larger group of, of players and characters than were playing any one session. Right. So some people would only play occasionally and would advance, uh, advance slowly, and some people would play would be in his basement playing as often as he would run the game, just constantly, mm-hmm. and uh, would you know gain levels and treasure very quickly, assuming they survived at all. Um, and he's he's wanting to make sure that people who haven't been able to play in a while uh, are still paying some upkeep. Which it's a it's a harder argument, but aren't unable to return because they've you know gone into debt from their upkeep, which would be rough. Um, while people who have this you know constant income of treasure aren't just walking away with it, you know. And right. well, we have everything now, so I guess we got ours. Right. You know what I mean. But he also he also wants to make sure that time feels linear as well that yep. uh if the if the if he had a party on a monday night in his game and they went into a certain layer and killed a certain creature some other players might not play the next day in the next game and accidentally go to that layer and find that creature suddenly alive again when the players from the day before killed it or or a character Right, like vice versa. He's also talking to the DM, right? He's not just saying, well, players need to be mindful of how active they are. He's saying the DM needs to make sure there's no sort of paradoxical issues going on here. Right, exactly. And that's another big issue with that uh, that that style of play, where there are uh, a lot of characters and adventures going on in timeline. Mm-hmm. Um but one group might still be on an adventure somewhere because you had to stop the session. Well, when a new roster of players comes in for the next session, what do you do? Right. Um, here's here's what he says on the next page. He says, at some point, even the stay-at-homes will be forced to venture forth into the wilderness due to need, geese, quest, or possibly to escape the wrath of something better avoided. The timelines of various player characters will diverge, meet, and diverge again over the course of game years. This makes for interesting campaigns and helps form the history of the milieu. Groups of players tend to segregate themselves for a time, some never returning to the kin of their rest, most eventually coming back to reform into different bands. So, you know, and and then as characters acquire henchmen, the better players will express a desire to operate some of theirs independently while they or their liege lord are away. This is a perfectly acceptable device, for it lent, it tends to even out characters and the game. Henchmen tend to become associates or rivals. This way, 
although a few will remain as colorless servitors. So in other words, you know, here's again this idea of he is expecting the the PCs when they get to a particular power level, they are in they are going to then, you know, the players themselves will then sort of set that character aside for a while and assume they're doing things in the background to, to maintain the stronghold. And they'll take the hirelings or the henchmen off as new PCs. Yep. Which was a perfectly like natural way to play that. You know, just as natural as it was if your character died, you brought in their brother or their cousin or their, you know, <laughs> whatever, right? <laughs> right. Um, so I'm... I'm paging ahead a bit did you have, yep. did you have more you want to say about that nope nope okay so um where are you paging ahead to so, so I'm, I'm going back to the rules on training new levels uh which of course we cover in our uh, episode on experience points mm-hmm. but the the gold piece expenditures here are just phenomenal and they tell you a lot about the scale of expected income um, mm-hmm. you know, when we we talk about uh, characters who have achieved name level must merely spend game time equal to the number of weeks indicated by the performance in a self-conducted training and or study. Costs in gold pieces are equivalent of the exercise then become a function of class. So your number of weeks of training, uh, as a reminder, is about uh, the GM's judgment of whether you have played your class appropriately mm-hmm. and that's real weird. But um, the rest of it is uh, a number of thousands of gold pieces per level per week. So fighters are the cheap ones and that's an interesting choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, clerics and thieves are both 2000 per level per week. Uh, so, so fighters at a thousand per level per week, uh, clerics and thieves at 2000 per level per week. And sorry, magic users, four thousand gold per level per week. Right. I mean, talk about your student loans. <laughs> hey, those those textbooks are super expensive, man. <laughs> Lord, are they? Like, you are importing those textbooks from where? Oh no, you're not allowed to buy the international version. Sorry, you have to buy the expensive oh. American version. Oh, uh, sorry, the expensive no City joke. of Greyhawk version. The City of Greyhawk right. University requires you to purchase their own printing press version of the book. Yes, yes. Oh man, I'm telling you. And uh, like, I, I assume that fighters are like getting some kind of like cost break for having what a, a athletic scholarship. Is that what we're seeing here? Mm-hmm. Like, man, those are some training costs. Yeah, they said there's a the the formula here level of the trainee character times fifteen hundred. Right. So so that's prior to name that's level. Prior to name. Use that's, that use that that's formula before nine. Yeah. So I mean, still super expensive. Yeah, it's it's nuts. Um, <laughs> I love this. Did you see that? Um, Initial study and or training must be conducted under the tutelage of a character of the same class and profession as the trainee. Blah, blah, blah. Exception. Oh, it's a note that the tutor might possibly accept some combination of gold and service in return for his tutelage at the DM's option. Exception in bold. A character with a performance score under two. This is that that idea that you you have to uh, adhere to the the definition of what it means to play that character well. 
A, a score under two need not be tutored, but the study and or training time will be twice the indicated period. One week becomes two, right? Like, I mean... Yep, like it, I, I can't imagine that that isn't where just all of your treasure gained goes mm-hmm. for a long time in play. Just mm-hmm. the, the first several levels, because right. like you're bringing a lot of money, but those are th- those are those are a lot of numbers. Oh boy! Um, well, so, and not only that, but also you know, um, if you were playing in a in a in a strictly Gygaxian format, also you know your armor was getting eaten up by rust monsters. Or, oh yeah. You know, you know, uh, uh, undone by germ lanes, and you know, like you're you're just getting uh, things are getting destroyed, and you have to replace that equipment. Um, yeah. And so not only the cost of, you know, there's a, there's an upkeep, just a living cost aside from the training cost and the, you know, the cost of, of any, any other events in the world that you're, that you're dealing with. <laughs> yep. So I was going to skip ahead to uh, the section that just goes ahead and says economics. Like, <laughs> yes, it, it, it's a, it's a many page section. Yeah. Um, Starts on page 90. For those of you following along at home, and it it's a lot of theory. I mean, this is this is DMG's persuasive essay, mm-hmm. um, and so. But remember, remember though. So let's let's uh, step back for a second and talk about what was happening in the in the RPG industry at this time. Right? Sure, there was this enormous explosion of people playing D and D, and and role playing games were a brand new thing. So. This was the advice book. You know, you couldn't just log on to Google and put a few search terms in and whatever. This was it. This is what you had. And Dragon Magazine, Strategic Review. Well, well and you know, a few other things, right? And obviously, Sly Flourish, right? You have Sly Flourish to go to, right? And Sly Flourish, because you know, yes, because he's he's been around since you know. Right. I mean, he he always tells me I'm older than dirt. But anyway, uh, so, (laughs) but you know, you know what I mean. Like, so, so this was it. So, in terms of like the persuasive essay, partly that's you know high Gygaxian, right? That's just his way. Uh, But partly it's because he is really trying to persuade people and teach people. Here's the right way to play the game. Here's how to play the game. Um, Now that the right way quote right way eh, you know we can have a whole conversation about that but in his mind as you know the person who's trying to basically say okay now that you've all had a little bit of a taste of the player's handbook and the monster manual let's really talk about how you do everything else that could possibly be in the world and here it is yeah and a lot of this section the first big section i want to say is duties excises fees tariffs taxes tithes and tolls yeah and it's brutal. Yes. Like, it's interesting that it doesn't get summarized as a, t- as a table, considering that those tables are, you know, Gary's favorite thing, favorite trick in layout. But yeah. instead, there's a paragraph that has all of these percentages that are just there to nickel and dime you <laughs> right to death. Right. 
I mean, uh, but then he says, "So wait, wait. Let's let's hear his own his own words. If the gentle reader thinks that the taxation he or she currently undergoes is a trifle strenuous for his or her income, pity the typical European populace of the Middle Ages. They paid all of the above, tolls being very frequent, with those trying to escape them." by use of a byway being subject to confiscation of all goods with a fine and imprisonment possible also. Every petty noble made an extraction, municipalities taxed, and the sovereign was the worst of all. So, I mean, he, yeah. you know, once again, this is his conception of the world, right? That yep. that these people live to rob you by taking taxes, fees, duties, tithes, everything. And that's just how the world is, and that's how the game should run. That's his. That's his idea. Right. I've I've been under the impression that you know, Gygax is a libertarian, and this would certainly give you that impression. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this this reads to me like uh, the Tenardiers in Les mm-hmm. Mis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, charge him for the mice, extra right. for the lice. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It is. It's just brutal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it certainly explains why you want to establish your own stronghold and start mm-hmm. doing it to other right. people. Yeah. Like, just, just go ahead and be part of that system. Be horrible. Yeah. Here's a great. Here's a great thing too. Diplomatic types have immunity from duties and tariffs as regards their personal goods and belongings. There we go. Taxes are paid per head annually at one copper for a peasant one silver for a freeman, and one gold for a gentleman or noble. Most foreign residents are stopped frequently and asked for proof of payment, and if this is not at hand, they must pay again. In addition, a 10% sales tax is charged to all foreigners, although no service tax is levied upon them. Uh, and then there's a section on uh, on getting money changers for when you go into mm-hmm. foreign lands. Right. Uh, other, other places and, don't you know, don't uh, use foreign currency. Your, your gold crown... Right. Is not what they use. They yep. use uh, the golden wing. That's what they call it, and it ha- looks different, and it's got a different amount of gold, and they do not accept yours. So, yeah, yep. I mean, and, and uh, that's a that's a ten percent yep. rake, right to the right mm-hmm. to the money changer. That's the PCs in my game have to do that, yeah. so I can't get too mad. I actually think that's the that's a way to make it so that you have a system where you're not bartering everything. But it still seems a little bit realistic because it's it cannot be the case if you play a game where you have different political factions in your game and different kingdoms and different you know regions. It can't be the case that they all everybody got together and decided to use the same currency. Uh, no, <laughs> no, they didn't. <laughs> That's not you know. I mean, yeah. So I, uh, yeah. right, like though at a certain point, like. Oh, I have an old Roman coin. Well, what was it from? Right. Do we do we accept that currency right. or not? Right. Yeah. Well, of course, but I mean, it's an easy way to to say that a a nation or kingdom wants to have control over its own currency and taxation rates. I hear the argument to realism here, mm-hmm. but I also find it very very easy to picture the, the malicious glee. On Gary's face as he bleeds you of a little more coin. Sure, sure. Yeah. Oh, trust me. I, you know, I don't, I, I, you will almost never catch me making an argument from 
from realism here and and saying that that's why we should do something. Uh, I just think that that isn't that that particular currency exchange is an easy way for a DM, any DM, not just Gary, to take money out of the player's hands. Um, in a way that seems kind of like, well, that kind of makes sense that some other countries would not use the same currency. So we have to deal with that right. in some way, you know, and then it doesn't feel as bad as, oh, well, we're taxing you. Right. And every time you turn around, we're charging you a fee like that's that feels punitive. Right. Extremely punitive. Whereas, you know, if there's an exchange rate with a fee attached, uh, you know, I don't know. I, this this kind of stuff only comes up for me if I play a really really political game. Like if I have really have lots of factions that are politically motivated. Um, oh yeah. And uh, and so yeah, it's it's. I think it has a time and place. I guess is what I'm saying. I mean, uh, jumping over to placement of monetary treasure, which is just another mm-hmm. like. Well, that's a description of what this episode is about. Sure. Right. Good, good job, Gary. <laughs> well, let's read um, the first two words. Wealth abounds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, uh, there's there's another first sentence of a paragraph that like, – how can I not read this out loud? Because it's sort of a huge part of the episode. Mm-hmm. A brief perusal of the character experience point totals necessary to advance in levels makes it abundantly clear that an underlying precept of the game is that the amount of treasure obtainable by characters uh, is graduated from small to large as experience level increases. Yep, that tracks. Yep. That that is 100% what the game expects and that hope that works out for you cuz otherwise the game really is going <laughs> to really gonna start dragging. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, but like, there, there's a lot of discussion here about how to build a horde and not have your campaign just break down, mm-hmm. like, including a specific invocation of Smaug's oh, horde yeah. in The Hobbit. <laughs> yep. Uh, like one of the really very few times that you see Gary invoke the professor and not, you know, uh, Fritz Lieber or uh, uh, Robert E. Howard. And here's a I'm, – I'm skipping ahead a couple of paragraphs, but here's a great sentence coming out of the mouth of Gary Gygax. Another nadir of dungeon mastering is the killer dungeon concept. These campaigns are a travesty. <laughs> they are a travesty of the role-playing adventure game, for there is no development and identification with carefully nurtured player persona. I mean, really, Mister? I wrote horrors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, we have to have a talk with them about. I don't know, maybe <laughs> Gary. Yeah, Gary, you know what you did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, uh, okay, I mean, we could do a whole episode on uh, Gary contradicting himself in various dungeon articles and whatnot. So That's I just, but I, I love that. I, I love that it's just right here, right in the first edition DMG. You know, I mean, published. You know, so early on in in the in the history of the game, and you know, there it is, right there, right in front of him. You know, and he even admits, you know, yeah, look, in 1979, we've had the game going for six years, and you know, but really, what it's saying is, tournament modules are different from a campaign. But I love that he says they're a travesty. It's a travesty of role playing. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah, and right, he. he- has nothing good to say about a Monty Hall right. game, but defining a Monty Hall game is a, a pretty hard idea, considering how much money you Neat. just yeah, have to right. be receiving right. to advance. So, 
there's a section here that I just it's horrible, but I can't let it go. It's it's one of the the most just wow you wrote that sections in all of this DMG, but peasants, serfs, and slaves. Yeah, the book is really operating on the assumption that the players will like include captured slaves that they put to work in their domain. Oh, oh, that does not seem good. Oh, no, thank you. Yeah. I mean, there's, he has the sentence in here. They are chattel. I mean, if a rising does occur, the player character must suppress it as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, oh no. Anyway, that's all I wanted to say about that, but I I hate that every time I see it. You know, the, the thing is that it's a very specific set of assumed world characteristics and it really is you know it and that makes it sort of more troubling right, right. because it's a reminder that any other assumption could right. have been made and also you know he's he's going from the i'm making a pseudo medieval world but his the the historicity of what he's saying is not exactly accurate let's say um right and so this is what you get yeah i mean i you know i i'm not trying to throw the guy under the bus uh but neither am i sort of letting him off the hook because i you know even in the late 70s when this was written um it was possible to have a, a different view of slavery and the the sort of traditional feudalistic societal ideas that he's It was possible to have a different view of those words in the 1870s. Well, I know, I know, but I'm just saying specifically when this was written. You know, I'm I'm definitely you know I'm not letting him off the hook just because you know I'm not allowing for a well. It has to do with the time he grew up or whatever. Like I I don't allow that. um, No, I I get you. That reasoning for making it okay. It's not right. But it 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 is something that needs to be addressed if you're going to run a campaign where the the party is. maintaining a stronghold do you do you pay your people or do you tax them do you let them own the land or are they working your land right but those questions i just asked are neutral questions they don't imply slavery uh yeah right whereas he comes with the assumption of serfdom and and slaveholding right um so anyway yeah we can move on right right um so the next time we get a lot of discussion of of money um, gets into um, you know, the, the cost per spell to have an NPC cast a spell for you. And a lot of these are, are going to be cleric spells because you got hurt or cursed or whatever, uh, poisoned. Uh, you need to get to a different plane. So there's a, there's a lot of different things you might be paying a, a priest to cast for you. Um, and they're incredibly expensive, but that's fine. You you're you know accessing a spell um, that your casters, your party's casters, didn't otherwise have available. So sure. Right, and remember, in this edition, it's possible that you try to learn a spell and you mess up your percentage roll because you have a chance spell known. Wait, do do clerics have that? Uh, clerics don't, but but uh, but magic users do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but you know but it's possible that a cleric in a party has 
offended their deity in some way, and so they have had their ability to cast a certain spell removed, um, because that's exactly how Gygax would run his game. <laughs> so, Well, right, and uh, atonement is 500 gold pieces per level of experience of the recipient. So there you go. That's that's what's going to cost you. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I mean, indulgences, here we come, right? Right. Yep. And oh, yeah. then there's a, a, a whole section on building a castle, you know, like you'd expect. Uh, mm-hmm. A, a yep. very detailed piece-by-piece piece costing gold pieces. It goes down to the level of what you pay for an arrow slit. I would like to observe that an arrow slit is an absence of stone. <laughs> That's fine. Yes, but you have to cut it out of a stone, so there is, uh, you know, yeah. the labor's always more than the actual item. Uh, it also also gives you the cost of a secret door, two, two yeah. feet wide by four feet high. And I'll have you know that uh, right. murder holes are uh, much more expensive than secret doors. So just just so you know, when you're, when you're I, making your castle. <laughs> I, I have feelings about the idea that the Barbican at 4,000 gold is less than the cost of one week of a ninth level magic user's time while he's training. Yeah, right. It's a ninth. It's it's one ninth of it. You could build nine barbicans for the cost of a week of your training time. Mm-hmm. I what? Right. <sighs> right. Ah, that, that that's a that's a statement about the world that I have a hard time processing. Well, because of like. The construction cost of all of that stone and labor, as compared to all the things you're you're buying, like I can't I can't make that work through any amount of logic. I mean, I see. For me, I guess the the idea is if you're thinking about simple supply and demand, the number of wizards available to cast a spell for you that is a high level is very low. Um, sure. So therefore, it has a high cost because the demand is high, but the supply is low. Sure. Right? Yeah. But for the stone, the demand is met with by the supply, so the cost is moderate. Especially if you're going back to using serfs and slaves for part of the labor. Yeah. You can't use a serf or slave for part of the labor for anything that a wizard is doing. So in a in a sort of nefarious, nasty way, it makes sense in my brain. As long as you're going to make the statement about the world that uh, sages and, and wizards and magic knowledge is rare. Uh, yeah, that's that's fair. If it's not rare, then if it's not rare, then it doesn't make sense. <sighs> you know, I mean, that's the only that's the only reason that that doesn't strike me as as something that seems really out of out of whack. No, that's fair. That's fair. So there are a number of other things that that cost money as we go on. Um, I, I think that. We've covered a lot of the the, the big interesting ones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the all the magic items here have uh, gold piece sale values, uh, which at least implies that you could buy and sell them. <laughs> Though uh, I, I'm not really clear on how intended that is. Right? Have you uh, did you did you catch the on page 114 the the holy or unholy water receptacles? I, I saw that. Yeah. Did you see the platinum? Basin cost. <laughs> That's the, the, those are those are uh, those are some numbers. Yeah, it, like a hundred thousand here and a hundred thousand there, and certainly you're talking right. about real money. Whoa! Uh, 
and like the the sheer volume of holy water that you're creating at that point is I have a harder time understanding why you need that at that point. Well, let's let's think about what that would do to the world, though, right? So we're talking about economies. There's an economy to healing as well that we haven't really talked about, right? Uh, true. Uh, since uh, Cure Light Wounds is one of the spells that you can absolutely hire a cleric to cast for you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what, what exactly is holy water going to do for you? Well, extra damage to the undead, for starters. Right. But uh, so, so that Cure Light Wounds uh, is 100 gold pieces. Cure Sirius, 200 Sorry, 350. Cure critical, 600. And then uh, heal is 200 gold pieces per point of healing. (laughs) So, wow. Yeah. Uh, That's a good time to get a party member to cast it for you. You'll wait. It's cool. (laughs) I don't need those three uh, hit points anyway. It's okay. Mm. (laughs) the, The natural healing over time rules are certainly brutal. Yes. Definitely. Uh, shocking, maybe, by today's standards, I think people might say. Yeah, I would agree with that. But I do find it interesting that uh, that that uh, any scroll can be sold in the open market for three times its experience point value. Nice. And protection scrolls specifically sell for five times their experience point value. I mean, if you can buy them at that rate, then that certainly is a uh, quick explanation of where you could get new spells in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, let's see. I'm sure... Because, I mean, you know, so protect. we're not talking about protection from good and evil. We're talking about, you know, protection from demons, right. protection yes. from devils, protection from lycan- lycanthropy. So, yeah. Um, but anyway. So I'm sure there's something crucial that I'm missing as I skim through the rest of this book. But, oh, probably uh, me as well. But I think that that is the, uh, the main of it for economy in this book. There's a lot more material on how to run the game, uh, but that is the uh, that's the the economy of this book. So what we've seen is both a discu- discussion of world building economics and treasure placement in the world economics, and then mm-hmm. a whole lot of discussion of different costs uh, and things you might want to buy and things you might be forced to pay. Mm-hmm. Uh, with all of that, uh, let's say, earned money, seized money, <laughs> property. I think that what this book really teaches us, it, looking at it uh, from the eye of, you know, I'm flipping through, I'm you know, just g- generally speaking, I'm flipping through and just looking for things and seeing if I can relate them to the economy of, of the game, of the game world. What this book actually teaches us is the economy and how money is received, obtained, and how it is spent tells us almost everything about a setting. And I think that's something that is not really – if you're not looking at it from an economic viewpoint, if you're not looking for the economics under everything – you don't see that. And I'm, I don't think that that's something that most people are looking at when they're first thinking about a setting. But as soon as you put in, as soon as you put in economics, it tells you so much about what's expected in terms of behavior. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that there's more, uh, more pressure to bring in money in, in this edition than in um, second and fifth. Because money is your advancement to such a great degree, 
and money mm-hmm. is your survival. I think that second is going to keep some substantial amount of money is your survival while mostly dropping money is your advancement. Right. Um, Although for rogues, remember, they still get... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's my mostly. Uh, yeah. Rogues definitely <laughs> are a caveat there. No question. And um, I, I do think that economics is a major through line here of of what goes on. And uh, what I do want to talk about um, is I want to jump over to the Dungeoneer Survival Guide. Okay. And I know that you also want to cover something in Unrest Arcana. I'm uh, I'm I'm looking at it. I'm just looking at what they you know what okay. it, what if it has anything in it. But yeah, go. Uh, I do not have the Dungeoneer Survival Guide in front of me, so you, you're you're driving the bus on that one. <laughs> All right. So um, so uh, my wife and I picked up a copy of this uh, this past year at Gen Con mm-hmm. uh, just to like flesh out the. The, the collection and there's a lot going on here, but there's one thing in particular that I wanted to talk about for the economy. And that's the section on mining. There's, there's a whole bit on building mines and it, the, the time that it takes the quality of gemstones that you're going to extract. And the, uh, there's a table for the product of the mine, and then there's a table for ore quality and gemstones and gemstone quality, and there's a section on smelting ore and all of this stuff. And the through line here, as I was saying earlier, is that the purpose of earning all this money is to enable you to extract more money. Like This is a, a complicated form of, um, of investment. Mm-hmm. Because while you might have to go on an adventure to clear out your mind, and that's pretty fun. Let's let's be real. That's right. that's a good time. <laughs> right. Um, that's a it's a good example of the game economy driving the story, which is I think the ultimate like payoff and fun is when you do something with the economy that drives story, right. and then the story turns around and feeds into the economy. Right. Right. That that's. That's exactly the goal. Anyway, there's there's a bunch of stuff here. Um, you're going to be spending just buku money to uh, extract all of this stuff. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff on uh, inherent hazards, issues of hireling loyalty. I mean, I've been listening to Old Gods of Appalachia, which takes the horrible dangers of uh, working in coal mining and tones it down to merely being mythos entities. <laughs> right. Uh, th- that's a wonderful horror podcast for anyone who isn't already right. listening to it. <laughs> so, um, but like, like I-, I love the section on unnatural hazards here. Perhaps the excavation of the mine has penetrated some long forgotten burial ground, awakening its hideous undead denizens. Perhaps uh, maybe deep dwelling monsters have become concerned about the penetration of service service dwellers so far to the earth. I mean, at this point, why wouldn't you just quote Lord of the Rings <laughs> delved too greedily and too deep. We're right. done. That's it. Right. That's it. That's the pitch. <laughs> right. Yep. Exactly. Um, I wonder if there's what's in the, so that's the Dungeoneer's survival guide. I wonder what's in the wilderness survival guide. Uh, I went through it, and I wasn't finding anything nearly as economy focused. Yeah, it, it wasn't wasn't seeming like as much of a thing. Um, 
I do want to say that uh, so the Unarthracana it doesn't have a huge amount. I mean, it has you know some new equipment and that has cost and all that, but that's not that's not the thing that um, that I want to mention. Um, the thing I want to mention is that uh, it talks about. Uh, it, it introduces a, a a social class and rank structure. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which which also includes um, and you know he, he doesn't do anything simple. So it's lower lower class, middle lower class, upper lower class, lower middle class, middle middle class. Right. It's all nine. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, and then there's a birth table. Uh, to determine your place of birth, of course, because the firstborn male is is given more rank and all that kind of stuff, and it has a ton more, you know, sort of pricing and sale values for different items that previously were not were not listed. Um, and it has a where'd it go? It has because this has illusionists and. And and some other magic users spell casting issues going on. It actually has a a cost for getting those uh, those types of individuals to cast for you. You know, previously it was we talked about all the clerics, all the cost of getting clerics to cast spells. Well, there's a cost of of casting spells if you want an illusionist to come and and, and cast an illusion. But other than that. Um, there's not. I mean, there's a, the the treasure section is huge. I mean, it's tables and tables and tables of new, you know, new things. Um, but it's also a lot of it's very mundane, right? Like uh, scale mail plus one, scale mail plus two, split mail plus one, split mail plus two, plus three, plus four, shield plus one. You know, so uh, nothing nothing too uh, fantastical there. I think I think that's all I need to say about this. It does it does uh, introduce the cavalier class, which has uh, a lord or liege that they are supposed to be attached to in some way. So it, it does it does kind of play with the idea of eventually, you know, building your stronghold because a, a cavalier is, uh, you know, going to have sort of different requirements at the beginning and whatnot. But I think we've basically covered all that. So I think that's it. Uh, yeah. So, so right. Um OD&D and 1E are sort of of a piece in terms of economy. Because we're going to mostly drop the treasure as XP concept mm-hmm. going forward, the sheer volume of income is going to drop off right. pretty sharply. Uh, so the game is going to... so. so what you're, we're going to see in future episodes in this series is that uh, second edition still gives you some things to spend money on and still has spell research and such and domain management as options, but it is not feeling anywhere near as much need to drain your coffers because mm-hmm. it hasn't built them up as much. And then we'll get into third edition and things are going to get real weird. Right. And then we get into fourth edition uh, and... And fourth edition is kind of doing what third did, but more so to me. Well, what I was going to say is it's weird in a different way. <laughs> yeah, that's that's not unfair. because of the magic. The magic item economy is just whacked. Uh, yeah, I, I think that I would say that both of those see gold as a um, a separate kind of XP track toward mm-hmm. improving your your stuff again. Um, yeah, but we'll get into all that next time. Um, so thank you very much, everyone, for joining us on this episode of Edition Wars. 
my co-host Sam, Dylan, and I always enjoy getting to uh, talk to each other, and we really appreciate hearing from you. So what do you think, Sam? I, I definitely agree with that statement. Um, I hope everybody's enjoying this. Uh, I, I feel like this this topic really um, goes well with the, the last topic, which was experience points. And the reason it goes well is because of how gold and experience intertwined in these older editions. But it is a very interesting leap that occurs and a very interesting change to the economics of the game that occurs when we get into the older editions. But yeah, we don't have time to do that right now. So that'll be the next episode. And uh, we appreciate you listening. And if you want to email us, you can email us at uh, dndebrief at gmail.com. That's dndebrief at gmail.com. That's actually my dndebrief email. Uh, If you have a topic you want us to cover or something you think we skipped or we got wrong or that we should have mentioned and we decided not to, please, please, please let us know. We would love to talk about it. And uh, if you want to support us, my co-host Brandis Stoddard has a Patreon. Yep, I do have a Patreon. It is Brandis Stoddard. I also write uh, for Tribality, tribality tribality.com. And you can also find me on Twitter at Brenda Stoddard or on MeWe at Brenda Stoddard. Excellent. And you can find me on Twitter at DM Samuel. And you can find me on my blog at RPGMusings.com. And uh, we hope you enjoy this. And I think this will be the end of the episode. 